0: And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against Him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for He has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel... They looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew laid around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, There was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. And Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Don't you see? The Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain, each of you, in his place and don't go out of your place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now, the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And Moses said, this is what the Lord commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar, put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. And the people of Israel ate manna for 40 years Till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Give yourself a hand. You did it. Earlier this year, a group of people from our church took a trip to Israel, to the Holy Land. And we spent most of our time around the Sea of Galilee and in Jerusalem. But we spent one day in the wilderness in the sinai desert and this is what it looked like driving through that for hours and hours on a bus and you know i grew up in the foothills of the appalachian mountains and so growing up when i would read about israel in the wilderness i imagined something very different from that i imagined something far more habitable streams and shade and trees (laughs) And then driving through the wilderness, I just was—I just remember thinking, "Wow!" And as we're driving through miles and miles and miles of desert, and as we were out taking tours of various sites, and in the middle of the heat, just the sun scorching down on us, I could not help but think of Moses and the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, following God to the Promised Land. I'm like, 40 years of this. Now, think for a moment. What would an Israelite have described? How would an Israelite have described their time in the wilderness? They might have said, I am starving out here. I'm so thirsty. I'm so hungry. Maybe they would have said, I feel like I'm just wandering around. Not really sure what God is doing. Why am I out here? Or maybe they would say, you know, we're grateful. I'm grateful that God rescued me from slavery and he was faithful in the past. But I'm not really sure where he's leading me now. Like, what am I doing out here? And or they may have said, you know what, I've seen God's faithfulness in saving me, but he also made promises. He said he would deliver me out of Egypt and take me to a land flowing with milk and honey. When will those promises come true? I'm out here in the wilderness, they might have said. All these unfulfilled expectations. See, the wilderness was an in between place for the Israelites. They're not in slavery anymore, that's good. But they're not in the promised land yet either. They're not home. And it's in the wilderness where their faith was tested. And it's in the wilderness where they asked over and over and over again the question, can God be trusted? And so I ask you this morning, do you know, do you know what it's like to be in a wilderness? Have you ever thought or said to yourself, I just feel dry right now. That's a desert language. That's wilderness language. Have you ever thought or said, I, I'm hungry for something more? That's wilderness language. Have you ever felt like you're wandering aimlessly, not sure exactly where God is leading you? That's a wilderness Have you ever had unfulfilled expectations in your life or have you ever said to God, God, I'm grateful for what you've done for me, but where are the promises? You know, you say you're going to wipe every tear from my eye, but I still seem to cry a lot of tears. When, When does the promise come true? See, in the wilderness, have you ever wondered in the wilderness, can God be trusted? See, the Exodus story, though, teaches us a few things about the wilderness, and it answers that question for us. See, to get from Egypt to the promised land, to get from bondage to well-being, to get from immaturity to maturity, from anxiety and fear and worry to shalom peace, the Israelites had to go through the wilderness. They had to. There was no other way. And God conspired with the wilderness, I heard one author say. He, he conspired with the wilderness to teach his people how to live in his promises. And likewise, it is in the wilderness where God shapes us. It's in the wilderness where God tests us. It's where in the wilderness where God forms us and prepares us for what, who he's calling us to be and what he's calling us to. And in our text today, we'll see that not only is God gracious in the wilderness... But God is doing something in the wilderness in us. See, the wilderness this is what you've got to know. Whatever wilderness looks like for you today, you need to know that the wilderness is not a place of death. God did not draw the people of Israel out into the wilderness to kill them or to dry them out. His intention was to save them and keep saving them. His intention was to get them out of Egypt, which which he's already done. But in 40 years of the wilderness, he's going to take Egypt out of them. So that they can enter into the promised land with full trust and full dependence on him. What is God doing in your wilderness? And what can you expect of him while you're there? And can he be trusted? First thing I want you to see this morning is in the wilderness... God feeds us. We feel like we're starving in the wilderness. I'm so hungry. I'm hungry for something more. God always feeds you in the wilderness. It may not be what you ask for. It may not be the menu you choose. But God will sustain you in the wilderness. So just to set the context a little bit. It's been literally one month at this point in the story since the exodus from Egypt. Where God miraculously rescued them. From slavery. And God then leads them into the wilderness. And life in the wilderness. It's difficult. I mean look at it. It's hard to find something to eat in the wilderness. Now they had food. They weren't starving. They had food. We know that they had livestock with them. That means that they had milk. They had cheese. And if they needed they had meat. They had food. But they, they grew tired of what they had. They didn't like the menu. And they began grumbling. Now what is grumbling? It's one of those, what's it called when a word, like the word itself sounds like what it is? Onomatopoeia, right? Grumbling. Grumbling, it, it, it sounds like, it is what it sounds like. Grumble, grumble. It is a low grade murmur of negativity. Anybody know what that sounds like? Grumbling, you know what grumbling is? It's cynicism. And... I used to pride myself on being cynical. It's like, ah, that's a New Yorker. Like we're just cynical toward everything. It's what we do. But my counselor told me, he said, Will, cynicism is a sign of hopelessness. Where what are you hopeless about? Where have you lost hope? Why are you so cynical? And where are the Israelites losing hope? Why are they grumbling? And where maybe have you started to lose hope? What's causing you to grumble? Toward what and to whom are you cynical? Maybe that'll diagnose something in your heart of where you've lost hope. But there is always hope in the wilderness. Listen to what it says in their grumbling, in their cynicism. They get dramatic, okay? Sometimes in our cynicism, our grumbling, our complaining, we, oh, we go overboard, don't we? And that's exactly what they did. You know what they said? They're like, oh, I wish God would have just killed us in Egypt where we sat by huge pots of meat and we ate bread to the full. God, why have you brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger? You notice what they do here? They start grumbling. They start gossiping. And then they start exaggerating. And they start remembering Egypt with all these fond memories. Like a month ago, they were slaves. Like they were slaves a month ago. And now they're sitting around going, "Mm." you guys remember how good Egypt was? God, man, those like pots of meat, just every... Buffets. There was just so much food. As much bread as we wanted. Man, those are the good old days. Now, do you think that's true? No. They weren't sitting around eating their fill. They weren't sitting around pots of meat. They were probably just given small rations of food, just enough... So that they would have strength to go out and do the slave labor that Pharaoh had for them the next day. Yeah, he gave them meat because they needed protein to build his storehouses. But they're remembering back. They're like, oh man, that steak was so good. And you're like, guys, it was like a Lara bar. Like that's what you were fed. All the- what are you talking about? But in the wilderness, their mind plays tricks on them. Ah, you remember those days in Egypt? Good times. I was... In my hometown a few weeks ago for a wedding and I was spending time with all my high school friends and they were I didn't play football with them, but I was friends with a lot of football players and they were reliving over dinner their high school glory days. Anybody know what that's like with high school friends and man to hear these guys talk about the our the Scottsboro High School Wildcat football team. You would have thought that we were full of a bunch of all Americans but and as they're talking, and you're like, man, dude, I don't even remember you playing. And like, you would have thought they were all Americans. And I'm like, I remember, no joke, we went, I remember my senior year, our football team went one and nine. We're sitting around dinner and these guys are talking about how great they were. Oh man, you remember that game? See, we, just, we tend to distort the past, don't we? And it's funny when it's high school sports and it's kind of harmless. I mean, it it helps us as middle-aged men as we get older to to think we were better than we were at one point. That's fine. That's funny when it comes to high school sports, but for the Israelites, it was problematic because they allowed their present anxiety to distort the memory of their recent past. And they looked back and they romanticized slavery. They romanticized Egypt. And I don't know about you, but have you ever looked back And romanticized about a destructive season in your life? Have you ever looked back and romanticized about a destructive relationship? Have you romanticized a season of your life or a behavior that you know you left behind because it was bad for you? But when you're tempted and when following God seems hard, you look back and you go, yeah, that was an abusive relationship. But at least it was somebody to come home to. And you romanticize what was behind you. For some of you, it's just the pain of your current season causes you to look back and minimize the struggle of the seasons before you. Your marriage is challenging, and so you look back on your single days, like, man, singleness was awesome. I came home when I wanted. I went out and parted, but you don't remember, do you, when you were single, the loneliness that was a part of that season? Or you have children, and you're like, oh, my children, I just want to rip my hair out. I don't have to rip my hair out. My kids, like it fell out when I had kids. And you're like, my kids just wear me out. And you're like, oh, Beck, like, babe, you remember when it was just us and we did what we wanted? We had all this money and we spent it on diapers and kids. whatever. And you look back and you're like, but then you're like, man, I remember. I remember that season where we desperately wanted a child and we were waiting for God to give us one. It wasn't as easy as we romanticize it. And it's easy in our wilderness seasons to look back on our past and tell ourselves how great it was. And whether sometimes that's past sin and sometimes that's past struggles and we go, oh man, remember the meat pots? And the Israelites look back on their slavery and all they can remember are pots of meat that probably didn't even exist. And how much do you think that broke God's heart? I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and now you're fantasizing About the meals that your slave masters gave you. And you would think God would like rebuke them right there. But God is so gracious. He's so gracious toward them. The Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. What does God do in their grumbling? He shows them grace. He feeds them. He feeds them in the midst of their grumbling. But he does it with a test. And the test is this. I'm going to send you bread from heaven every day. Every day for the next 40 years. All you have to do is receive it. Like that's all you've got to do. You don't have to kill anything. You don't have to garden. You don't have to work. You don't have to strive. You don't have to earn. You just have to gather it every day. And just gather what I tell you to gather. You just have to receive it. And he gives only two commands. Gather only what you need each day and take no leftovers. When my wife and I adopted our oldest son, we had to take several adoption classes. And my wife, she's a social worker and she trains uh, adoptive families and prepares them for what um, adoptive parenting looks like. And one of the things that when you're preparing to adopt a child that you have to prepare for is that children that come from a history of poverty typically have issues when it comes to food. And what often happens is they hoard. You'll see this often with adoptive children. They'll, you'll give them a meal and they'll, put it in their, they'll, they'll eat some of it and then they'll put some of it in their pocket. And Or they'll, they'll hide it. They'll hide it in their room or something. And one of the challenges of bringing a previously poor or homeless child into your home is to convince them that you will provide for them every day. Yet these kids with their history, they will stuff food in their pockets. And because, or they will overeat. And they'll just stuff themselves because they aren't positive that you're going to provide the next meal for them. How sad is that? Isn't that heartbreaking? They have loving parents. They have a new life, a new home. They have a father and a mother who desire to provide for them, yet they still live as if they're poor and as if they're homeless and as if they're orphaned. And one of the ways that you know that a child has received the love of their parents and has been grafted into their new family is when they learn not to hoard when they learn to trust their parents. And sometimes that takes a long time. And we're not so different, are we? And neither were the Israelites. Because God gives them a test. He says, do you trust me? Can you receive my blessings on my terms? Because remember, they were asking, can we trust God out here in the wilderness? And God turns the question back on them and he says, can you trust me? Can you trust me in the wilderness? I'm, gonna, I'm going to provide for you, but are you ready to receive my bread as my people on my terms? Or are you going to keep using the old the methods that you used in Egypt? See, to follow me in the wilderness requires trust, God is saying. Another way of saying it is you've got, uh, to follow God in the wilderness requires obedience to His word and His commands. See, the old ways of receiving bread in Egypt are completely inappropriate here. God is testing them to see if they trust him yet. The way they got bread in Egypt was by anxiety and by hoarding. And the question now is, can they trust God and learn a new way of getting bread? And that way is receiving. Not hoarding, not striving, but receiving. And in, the wild, in our wilderness seasons, God will test us in similar ways. See, we have all these old ways in our lives. You have them, I have them. We have old ways that we try to grab hold of acceptance, approval, security, pleasure. Those are the things we want. We want acceptance, approval, security, and pleasure. And we will try to grab at pride, accomplishment, secrecy, manipulation, dishonesty, selfishness, sometimes even perversity to gain those things. And we try to hoard as much pleasures and as much security as we can for ourselves. But God is saying, this is not how you receive life in my family. You receive it on my conditions. And that is to receive it, to trust me. And that takes humility and vulnerability and open hands. Will you receive life through God's conditions? But yet we want to hoard. We want to gather as much approval from others as we can. We want to gather as much pleasure as we can. We want to gather as much security as we can from others because we aren't really convinced that God's approval and God's security is all we need. We're not fully convinced of that, so we try to have something stored up on the side for when we feel like God will inevitably fail us. And by hoarding, we're already saying that we don't trust that God will provide We haven't learned. When we do this, it shows that we haven't learned to trust God fully yet. We're like a little kid sitting in a high chair putting a muffin behind their back because they don't trust that their parents are going to give them lunch four hours later. We must learn to trust God for our daily bread. Um, We had a women's discipleship event about a year ago, maybe a year ago. And we had come and speak. Do you guys remember this? Some of you ladies remember this? You know, she spoke on seasons of waiting. And her story is that she didn't get married till later in life. And that was a real struggle for her. And, you know, she, she struggled with, she felt like God was calling her to marriage, but she struggled with why she wasn't, why God hadn't given that to her yet. And she said, I, I said, I had trouble waiting on God. I had trouble trusting in God during that season. And I don't want to put words in her mouth, but sort of to fill in the story. I mean, it, In that season, I'm sure she was tempted to lower her standards for men. I feel like God's called me to this type of guy, but maybe maybe I can settle for this type of guy. Maybe she was tempted to pursue intimacy or companionship on her terms rather than God's. But she said one of the hardest parts of her seasons of waiting, she said, is that I didn't know how long it would last. And isn't that the hardest part of our wilderness seasons? Is you're in like a hard season and you're like, man, I'm waiting on the promises of God, but how much longer am I going to have to wait? And we start to think about the future and we start not to think about the day in front of us. Jesus says each day has enough trouble of its own. Just worry about that day. But we worry about months and years and years in advance. And we're like, I don't know how long this wilderness is going to last. And so the anxiety starts to build and we start to lose trust that God's going to provide for us. And what she said, one of the great turning points in my life during that season of waiting was, she said, hearing this story of trusting God for your daily bread with what the Israelites had to do. And she said, you know what? She said, when I tried to imagine if she's like, if God had called me to 10 or 15 more years of singleness, she said it would have overwhelmed me and I would have lost faith in God. She said, but when I would wake up every day and say, God, I believe that you can sustain me for the next 24 hours. I'm not worried about the next 24 years, but God, I'm trusting you to sustain me for the next 24 hours. She said he always did and he always can. And I don't care what your season of wilderness is, whether it's a rebellious child, whether it is you're waiting for marriage or you're waiting for a child or you're waiting just for the redemption of all things. The daily bread will be there. He will sustain you day by day by day. And sometimes He doesn't tell us what the next 40 years is going to look like because He wants us to trust Him for the next 24 hours. In the wilderness, the people grumbled, yet God was gracious. In the wilderness, the people hoarded, yet God provided just what they needed. See, in the wilderness, God feeds us our daily bread. It's not always the menu we want. It's not always the portions we want or even the timing that we want. But do you trust? Do you believe that God will feed you, that he will provide for you? And are you able to receive God's blessings on his terms? And you're like, I I hear this sometimes, and then I read passages like James one, where it's like, consider it pure joy when you go through every trial, and God is testing you. I'm like, I used to hear this sort of thing, like, what kind of God gives a test to His people that He loves? What kind of God gives a test every day for forty years for people, even though they fail it every single day? A gracious God. Because this, this test isn't about pass fail. It's a test where He's teaching them to rely on Him. They fail it. I mean, like literally, the chapter before this, they, they griped about water. And then there's this chapter. And then the very next chapter, they gripe about bread again, or water again. And they're going to grumble and grumble and grumble many other times. God's going to test them over and over and over again. And every time they fail, God's going to hit reset and He's going to try it again on them the next day. Because God is gracious and he even if it takes 40 years, he is going to teach them what it means to be satisfied in him. Jesus says to us, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, are you going to learn that the hard way or are you going to learn that the easy way? That's up to you, but God will continue teaching you. You just have to trust. And it's in the wilderness that we learn that God satisfies and he feeds us. Now, second thing, it's in the wilderness that God prepares us. One of the things I love about this story is Moses is like the model of excellent leadership in this chapter. Like he maintains his composure so well. Like, I mean, did you notice this? The people are grumbling against him. They grumbled against Moses, they grumbled against Aaron, and they're griping to Moses, and then Moses is having to go back and forth between God and the people, and Moses stays calm. He doesn't panic, and he mediates between the people so well, he doesn't get angry with the people, and then he doesn't accuse God like he used to. He stays calm, and he leads with confidence and trust that God will provide. Now, how did Moses stay calm in all of this? He was hungry too. See, remember, if you're like, didn't, Will, didn't you just preach a sermon on the wilderness like a month ago? Yes. Remember, Moses has already spent 40 years in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he spent it as a shepherd. And in the wilderness, he has already endured the harsh heat of the desert. He learned to trust God for water and food. He's already seen God provide. And he can look back and see God's faithfulness at work in his wilderness season and his 40 years in the wilderness prepared him to lead the people of God in their 40 years of the wilderness because he knew that God would provide because he'd already seen God do it. See, you know, when I was younger, I used to hate cliches. I still kind of do, especially spiritual cliches. You know, the ones God will make a way when there seems to be no way or you don't know God is all you need until God is all you have. Or all things work together for good for those who fear the Lord. And I used to hear people say that and I'm like, ah, oh, I just made me want to puke. I'm like, oh, like cliche. And these platitudes. I don't want to hear this anymore. And that's so empty. But then I went through a few wilderness seasons of my own. Painful, dark, lonely, uncertain, scary wilderness seasons where I wasn't sure where life and joy was going to come from each day. And in those seasons, I learned that sometimes the cliches are true. Those who have made it through the wilderness know these things are true, that God is faithful to provide, that He will make a way where there seems to be no way. And that you won't know that God is all you need until God is all you have. But you, can, you can't really know these things unless you've been through it. And I'll tell you what, when I went through seasons of pain, when I came across people who had been through exactly what I had been through, and they said, hey, Will, God's going to provide for you. It didn't feel empty to me then. Because I knew that they had walked through the wilderness that I was already in, and God had prepared them to lead me through my wilderness. And I've learned and I am constantly learning that many that many of these things the hard way, just like Moses. But as I look back on my life, it is clear to me that God has used my wilderness seasons to make me a far better and far more empathetic pastor. Who wants a pastor that's never been through a wilderness? God has used my seasons of pain to better qualify me to walk other people through their wilderness. Just like he used other people's pain to qualify them to walk me through mine. And he he is using your wilderness seasons to prepare you to lead others through. It may be your own children that he's calling you to lead them through their wilderness one day. And you've got to walk through the fire today so that you will know that you won't be burned. And that you can tell your children with confidence that they will make it. See, Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness learning to trust God. And those 40 years prepared him for the next 40 where God would call him to teach the people of Israel to trust him in their wilderness. You see, God sometimes may take you through a wilderness to prepare you to lead others through their own. See, nothing is wasted in God's economy. God uses the wilderness to prepare you for the life he's calling you to live. Finally, the last thing we see is that in the wilderness, God is with us. I know that we read a lot of Bible early on, but I don't know if you captured these verses as I read in 9 and 10. It says, Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near, draw near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling.'" And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness. And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. See, that, the glory of the Lord was always there. The wilderness was that way. And God was leading them through the wilderness to the promised land. And if they were to look toward the wilderness... They would have seen the glory of God, but they were afraid to look toward the wilderness because they weren't sure what it was going to look like. So they turned away and they looked toward Egypt. But Aaron says, draw near, turn your eyes toward the wilderness. And when they looked, they didn't see emptiness, they didn't see destruction, but they saw the glory of the Lord with them. Likewise, when you and I are in our wilderness seasons, we're tempted to look back. And we're tempted to grumble, but we must look up and we must look in the direction that God is leading us. And when we do, we will see a God who joins us in the wilderness. Hebrews 4, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. The Israelites were hungry. Jesus had been hungry. The Israelites were thirsty. Jesus had been thirsty. The Israelites felt homeless. They had nowhere to lay their head. The scriptures say that Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. Whatever you've been through, Jesus has gone through it as well. We do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Where is God in our wilderness? He's with you. Where is God in my pain? He's right there with you. But he knows and he'll remind you that it won't last forever. See, Jesus passed through the wilderness of death only to rise three days later. See, the wilderness did not have the final word over his life. Therefore, it does not have the final word over yours. And for 40 more years, Israel would wander in the desert eating the same meal over and over and over again. Three meals a day for 40 years. How many thousands of meals is that that God provided? God provided. They ate the same meal over and over and over again. But whenever they felt like God had abandoned them, all they had to do was look up and they would see the presence of God among them in the pillar of the cloud and fire. And that would remind them that even though they're in the wilderness, they are not alone. And that God has not brought them into the wilderness to die, but he's brought them into the wilderness to rid them of Egypt so that they can be prepared for the promised land. And for you and me, we will go through wilderness seasons, but we must look up in the midst of our wilderness and see that God has not left us alone. That he has come and that he has suffered with us so that our suffering will not last forever. Let me pray for you.